discarding old things, especially if I think they have some value uh, to them. I keep things around is what I'm saying. Uh, If you were to come over to our home or venture back into my office, you would see a lot of just things, random things, uh, keepsakes, sit-arounds, as my wife calls them. Um, Trash is what I think she's saying, but she calls them sit-arounds. Just a few pictorial examples of what I'm talking about when I say that I have a hard time giving things up uh, and getting rid of things. The first is this Beatles calendar from high school, 1990. I still turn those pages every single month. It hangs above my record player. Um, Back when a certain Supreme Court justice was up for nomination and they unearthed a high school calendar in every SNL episode. Keep a high school school calendar. And I was like quietly in the corner like, I do. Keep a high school calendar. Um, Any young lifers in here? Just a few. I've got an old Young Life songbook here from 1977. Uh, it's been chewed up, as you can see. I don't know who chews those up, but uh, mine was chewed up. I'm not throwing it away because Sloop John B. is in there from the uh, Beach Boys. So uh, whenever I want to know the chords for that. I also have kept, for some reason, my trophy that I got at the end of the year youth group banquet in church. <laughs> Do you see the reward I got, the, the superlative of friendliest yeah, my wife was like, that ended as soon as you went to uh, college and we met, but, but definitely, definitely have kept that around, obviously. Uh, a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, I don't remember, but I posted this photo on Instagram, and it's a picture of my, I'm the one in the middle with the, what we would call back then, the mini truck mullet. Um, never mind. <laughs> a few people will get that, but... Uh, this is my cross-country team, and they made a calendar, whatever. But do you see the circled comment at the bottom? Friend from high school. Wow, do you throw anything away? This is the comment that I get. So if you give me something, what I'm saying is, chances are I'll keep it forever. So don't give me anything. <laughs> I have a hard time. There are some things that I keep around, however, that remind me of someone else. Um, Maybe one of the biggest things in our home is my record cabinet, uh, which was given to me after my grandmother passed away. It was hers. My mom talks about how she remembers that record player in the home growing up. It's a beautiful piece of furniture, and it was a joy to get up and running and to play it. And uh, when I use it or tell people about it, she always comes up in the conversation. It's always Uh, there's always a comment about her. And I think that speaks to something about the honor and the memory of someone. In 2002, I took a job as a youth pastor, as a high school pastor, uh, at a church south of the city here. And very quickly, after being hired, I found myself in uh, the hospital waiting room with a high school student whose dad was dying. And I didn't really know this kid, but this was a fast-track way to get to know someone, and really in the worst of situations. And it was a tough, uh, a tough season for him, for sure, but definitely an awkward season for me as I inserted myself, per my job, uh, to do the work of, pa- of a pastor in this situation. I would check him out of school to go and see his father, spent a lot of time in hospital waiting rooms, asking if there was anything I could do, 
You know how it goes. And a few days after his dad's funeral, uh, I was setting up for uh, the Wednesday night gig in the youth room, and he walked in early, because he played in the band, he walked in early with his guitar, but also with the flowers from the funeral, and he asked if he could put them on the stage for a while. And I said, of course, and they stayed there for a few weeks, the honor and the memory There are two days on the church calendar that things get very real, very human. They are Ash Wednesday and All Saints Day. Both of these days touch on the hard things of life like suffering and brokenness, sin, human limitation, frailty, and of course, loss. Ash Wednesday focuses on our own mortality And All Saints Day turns our attention to those we've lost and to the real work of living with that absence. All Saints Day is always November 1st. You got to follow up the Day of the Dead with the Day of the Dead. All Saints Day is always November 1st, but churches typically push this to the Sunday following. And it was originally a day to remember the deaths of the martyrs that had been taking place in the ancient church, dating all the way back to the 4th century, making it one of the oldest church calendar events and feasts on the schedule. But over time, All Saints Day grew and expanded to include the remembrance of all those who have died, from the more well-known popular saints of the past, but also the ordinary saints, such as our own family and friends and neighbors The word saints, by the way, appears a lot in the New Testament. It is the most common moniker for those who follow Jesus. The saints make up the church. And churches across our city and all over the world are observing this day at this very moment. It's a powerful reality if you think about it. The global church is hitting pause on its normal Sunday-to-Sunday routine to give honor in memory to those who have died. And I would say there's an understated power in that, in this practice of the church setting aside its normal stuff to turn its heart, its attention to the human experience of loss. It's not something we like to do because ours is a time, we are living in the time of the anti-aging hoax. This near worship-like affinity with invincibility and longevity. In her recent book, which is fascinating, uh, Rena Raphael in the Gospel of Wellness, she writes, wellness in its current form is almost an aspirational obsession for some and close to a religious dogma for others. The average American believes that adherence to popularized methods can overcome sickness, unhappiness, and even death. A a strict overall uh, overhaul of diet, movement, and thoughts is hailed as the new Messiah. This is the age in which we live. It's interesting to hear just the word anti-aging in ads. It's like, is this, is that science? Anti-aging, is that a thing? We all age. And in this time of the anti-aging hoax. 
there stands the sobering day of the saints, the reminder that life's direction is towards loss. I hope that you know that, right? We all think in our youth that, like, that day will never come. But life's direction is towards loss, and, the, and that absence, unabsence, is the very familiar neighbor of those who remain living. And so on this day, we hit pause to remember those who have died, but not only those who have died, but to stand with those among us who are living and who are living without. When that high school student placed the flowers from his dad's funeral on the youth room, youth room stage, what he was doing was summoning his faith community to suffer with him, to notice his pain, to see it, and to remember his father. Now, not an insignificant number of early Christian communities, ancient ones, believed that Jesus would return soon, like in their lifetime. It's highly probable that the Apostle Paul carried around that same expectation, kind of disappointed at the end of his life. Jesus, where are you? Have you ever felt that way? Don't we all sort of pray that, like just come back while I'm alive? I don't want to go through the thing that takes me to you, just come back before I have to do that. And not an insignificant number of early Christian communities believed that. But as time rolled on and months turned into years and years into decades, many of these ancient Christian communities wondered if Christ's return was not to be. And then people started dying. And death has a way of rattling hope. And in our reading this morning that Addie read for us just a moment ago, we are handed this challenge and also the possibility of hope. Now, this reading comes from a letter that was written to a church in the city of Ephesus sometime after the mid to late first century. And the setting is one of struggle uh, and suffering, something we know from the political history in and around that time. Suffering and loss are very present realities for these people. And whatever the particular circumstances were, the letter doesn't address them all, one of the fallouts for this early Christian community was the struggle to maintain a sense of hope. And hope is hard to maintain. Listen closely as I read a portion of that text again. I want you to listen to how it's spoken in terms of hope. The writer says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. And I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which, you, to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among his saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the work of his great power. The common New Testament triad of faith, hope, and love has been broken up in this text. 
And you can see it if you open your Bibles and look at it. You can see that the word hope is dropped from the idiom and moved further down into the letter, now sitting in this place of request. It's been lost. There's faith and there's love, but hope is waning. And so the idiom has been broken up and hope has been moved to a place of request, a place of desperation. The prayer is that hope would return that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the letter says. This is a prayer. A loss of hope is never a good thing, at least long term. We all lose hope in certain situations, but it's not the station you want to be in your whole life. A hopelessness is difficult to manage, even though it can be normal to lose hope at times. The prayer is that hope always returns. And what is this hope? Well, hope has to do with things to come. It has to do with outcomes. It has to do with the future of things. And within the message and the prayer of this letter, we find it inviting us to look forward by kind of looking backwards. In other words, hope in this letter is tied to an event, the resurrection of Jesus. Hope is an interesting thing in the New Testament because It finds its future strength in the past. He writes, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 20. So many times throughout the Bible, we find this practice of pointing ahead by pointing backwards. The writer is saying, when what's ahead seems uncertain and scary, remember this thing that happened back in the day. The resurrection of Jesus. Now, wherever you come down on the resurrection of Jesus, wherever you land in that subject today, honest historians look back into the years of the church's infancy, and usually all are able to say, well, something happened. Something incredible took place. Something remarkable unfolded. And it was reinventing the way people lived, not least in how they viewed the world, but also its future. If Christ had been raised from the dead, the question that Christians ask is, what does that mean for us in this life, but also for creation itself? And so the writer is asking us to look back to that. Something happened. And as Christians, we believe and seek to believe and walk around the belief of the resurrection week in and week out. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that is the event that hope is tied to, yes. But the Bible also tells us that the whole creation is included in this thing. That God's work in the world is towards a place where all things get made better. Is that the right phrase? Get made better? Is that right? Sure. It's the South. We can just, you know, where things get better. That everything is not lost. Amen? Not even you or me. I love that part of the gospel. In verse 21, the writer says, Far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, the time in which we live, but in the age to come. There's a futuristic piece to this. The Jewish phrase, olam ha'aba, the world to come. There is a world to come. Sometimes I'll watch uh, Stephen Colbert. Sometimes he gets on my nerves, but most of the time, pretty funny. And he does this thing sometimes where he has guests on and he asks them a series of questions. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, And one of the questions he always asks them is, what do you think happens to you when you die? Have you seen this? The answers are fascinating. I mean, just fascinating. And many of them, most of them, lead towards some kind of carrying on after this life, like a heaven of sorts. I imagine this is because this is the hope of all people. Most people don't hope that this is it for many reasons. And I imagine that the answers of these guests on the show is because that's the hope contained in the carry around, that all is not contained in this life only, but that there is a world to come. In the words of Bruce Springsteen from the great song Atlantic City, everything dies, that's a fact, but maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Amen. You can find the gospel anywhere, my friends. In the Nicene Creed of the fourth century, we find the very final words of that creed where the church says, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That word look there really is expect. There's an expectation. We expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. What a powerful prayer. A world without end, as the liturgy says. And that's a hard conviction isn't it? It's not easy to hold on to this hope of the resurrection, especially in the midst of loss. And the writers of the Bible, I think, knew this very well. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. You may know this, but he, he writes, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is what? Love. That somehow there will be a day when faith and hope are no longer needed And only love remains, that love is somehow the destination of all creation. But for now, we wrestle with faith and we wrestle with hope. We also wrestle with love, but love's going to stick around. But those other two are the things that we struggle with each and every day of our lives. And I think the communion, which we'll take in a moment, speaks to us in this hour. It speaks a needed word of hope. In the liturgy, we will say that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will what? He will come again. And within this, we find both a history and a future. The bread and the juice are historical. They remind us that Christ lived at a time in history and he died. That's a piece of history. 
But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 about the communion, saying, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We tell of the Lord's death every Sunday, and we do it until he comes. The communion itself names the liminal space that we all live in, this life between the two arrivals of Christ, which means a life of wandering and wondering, a life of questioning and suffering. It's a life that we endure. And the sadness, of course, of those around us who have lost people. Communion speaks a very particular word to us. But we live through these things together. That's the point. At least that's the call of the scriptures. And we stand beside each other in our losses, close enough to hear the words and the songs and the liturgies that bring hope. I have said this in many ways from this stage before, that with no disrespect to the goals of religious and theological education, uh, the church is not actually a content machine. It is mostly a table. It is a place that all people are invited to be human and to hear the story of the world to come. Amen? Now, don't get me wrong. Love the stuff. Love the content. Love the languages. Love the history. It's great, and we do those things. But that is not the primary heartbeat of the church. It is mostly a table And tables can be places of healing and hope and relationship. And so today I encourage you to pause and think about those in your life that are suffering loss, who are living with an absence, and how that absence is their closest neighbor and to be the church in that moment and to those people, to invite one another to the table. And as you stand in line for communion in a moment, you stand in line with uh, all of these different people who have their own stories and their own struggles and sufferings, and we do that together. We do not do that in isolation. Amen.